If you're new with us, uh, we love to work through books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible consecutively, and we're studying Genesis chapters 1 to 11 this summer, and uh, we, we're at the story of Noah, which occupies the largest, uh, is, is the largest section of, of these first 11 chapters, and I'm going to try to make it uh, to chapter 8, verse 22 uh, this morning. Um, I will not go 40 days and 40 nights, um, and we, we won't read every single verse, but you'll do well to have your Bible out, uh, either on a tablet or in uh, paper, and uh, as I will be commenting on all of it, and it is really a remarkable, remarkable story. Donnie's already alluded to many of the themes uh, that we see in it, and I just want to pray and ask for the Lord's help um, that we would feel the significance of this passage. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. This is a, a familiar story. I'm not sure uh, what comes to your mind when you think about Noah and the ark. Maybe you think about cute, fuzzy animals entering into the boat in twosies, children's books uh, with cartoon characters, children's wings in churches being decorated with the animals from Noah's ark. Maybe you think about popular movies, maybe the one where Russell Crowe played Noah, or the movie Evan Almighty, where Steve Carell uh, plays a congressman who builds an ark and Morgan Freeman is God. That's not a biblical movie, I hope you know that, right? Um, for many people, this is just a fun story. It's maybe a kid's story. It's, it's a story that, that we, we pass along to our kids uh, and we, we love to retell. A lot of people don't want to really think about the, the major themes in this story because, uh, well, they're quite sobering. They're very significant. And so what ends up happening at the end of the story of Noah's Ark often is we're told to go love animals. But I want to suggest to you that this story really illustrates what Paul says in Romans 9. Behold the kindness and severity of God that there is weight here, there is significance here. You just sim simply think about the fact that God in this story judges humanity for their corruption and wickedness, and every single person on the earth dies except eight people. Every creature dies except those that go into this ark. Now, those are the things we don't really paint on the walls. But it's also an amazing story of the kindness of God. God saves a remnant and he gives humanity a new start. This is an unforgettable picture of salvation. And in the New Testament, we often read of these uh, instances where the writer will say, but God. He'll give us our previous condition, and then it's but God made us alive together with Christ. And in Genesis 8-1, we have what you might call the first but God statement. But God remembered Noah. Humanity in its wickedness and in its corruption and God in his favor, God in his grace, saves Noah and his family. And this continues the larger storyline of Scripture. The judgment of God destroys the ungodly line, but the righteous seed of the woman is spared. And eventually through this seed would come the one greater than Noah who would save humanity from their corruption and wickedness. And you may have picked up on it as Katie was reading this text. There are a lot of echoes from the language of Genesis 1 because it's sort of a reversal of creation. It is decreation that takes place in judgment before God then sort of does a recreation. And so we see a lot of that language. 
Now, we're going to try to make it, as I said, through 822 uh, in the text. Uh, the story really goes down to uh, the end of chapter 9, and it's set apart, bracketed by the phrase, these are the generations of Noah. The, the book of Genesis is sort of outlined with that heading, these are the generations of. There are 11 of these sections uh, in the book of Genesis. And so let's have a look at uh, the story, and then I want to back away and think for a moment about the imagery, and think about what the New Testament writers say about this story. And it's also important, I think, to remember that if you struggle with the historicity of this story, one of the things you have to grapple with is the fact that the New Testament writers assume its historicity, as does Jesus. And so I, I, after we kind of work through our, the text, I'd like for us to then think about what they say about this story, all right? So let's look at it in three quick parts. First of all, the flood, or excuse me, the faith of Noah. Secondly, the flood of judgment. And thirdly, the faithfulness of God, all right? The faith of Noah. The account begins by drawing attention to Noah's character and Noah's context. That he is in this corrupt generation, but he is blameless. Yeah, it doesn't mean he's sinless, but it means that this is a righteous person. He is righteous because of uh, what we read last week, chapter 6, verse 8. He found favor in the eyes of God. And consequently, Noah walks with God. That wonderful little phrase that was uh, stated about Enoch in chapter 5, that Enoch walked with God and he was taken up. So Noah's character is flowing from the grace of God in his life. It's flowing from his faith. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Noah, chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So he is an example of faith for us. He is a type of Abraham, you might say, who later is told to be blameless and walk before God. He is a type of Moses. He is a type, ultimately, of Christ. And what is emphasized in this story is you've got a corrupt generation, but what gets God's attention, what pleases God, is that we walk with him. Do you believe that God is more concerned with your character than your career? That he is more interested in who you are than what you do. Noah shows us a picture of godliness in an ungodly age. Everything flows out of that, that walking with God. We see his family mentioned in verse 10, the sons, Shimham and Japheth. We'll say more about them later in the series. Maybe it's worth noting at this point that um, Noah's son here, uh, the first son, is the ancestor of the Semitic people groups. That is the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three times in verses 11 and 12, we read about Noah's context being corrupt and also filled with violence. This is reflecting back on uh, chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. So this is what you would see normally in society during this time, great wickedness, great violence. And then in verse 13, God reiterates what he said in verse 7, previously in the chapter, that he is determined to put an end to all flesh. And he's going to destroy everything on the earth. He hasn't revealed yet how he's going to do it, but that he will do it. So he then began to give Noah instructions about the ark, and he tells him about this flood that is coming. So he says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now it's very interesting, the only other mention of this word up to this point, or excuse me, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, is in Moses when he was in a basket. That he was in, if you like, a little ark, a little boat. 
And he floated down the Nile River, and God preserved him. And here, Noah is gonna, and his family is going to be in this boat, this ark, and God will preserve their life. He is a saving God. He's a preserving God. He tells Noah to build this boat that is rectangular barge-like. It is rectangular barge-like shape. Mentioned there in verses 15 and 16, the dimensions are given in cubits, but uh, it basically comes out to a boat that's 450 feet long. So larger than a football field, watertight. Most scholars have said that this is a seaworthy boat that is being mentioned. There are other ancient stories of a great flood, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, but in that story, the boat is a gigantic cube that would have never remained stable in the water. The ark that is described as an actual boat. Now, you could go to Kentucky today and see a replica of this ark. That's not where it rested. That's, it's a replica, okay? <laughs> and uh, I've been there, and it's very interesting. Some of you probably been there or going there. Hoseas, one of our members, said it changed his life going there. I didn't really have that kind of experience, but it was, it was something to behold. You just see the dimensions of this boat and imagine what that must have been like in Noah's day. But even though it was a real boat, we also have to point out that they still needed the providential hand of God to survive this flood. <laughs> that their hope wasn't ultimately in, in the wood and in, 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 in the boat-like structure, but, but they were in the hands of God. Now, verse 17, the language that's used here about this flood seems to indicate that this was a global flood. And the New Testament writers seem to affirm this. Peter reflects on this story a couple of times, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 3, and that this judgment that is going to come by means of this water is a type of final judgment that will come in the future. But God will save them through the flood waters of judgment, and he makes a covenant with them. This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible, that he is going to make this binding formal agreement with them and that they shall come into this ark, and that they will be safe. He will save them by his covenantal grace. And then in verses 19 and 20, remarkably, he's told to get groups of animals, two of every kind, male and female, so that they can repopulate the earth. And you notice at the end of the verse 20, it says that they shall come to you, and you shall keep them alive. So Noah didn't have to go on a wild safari to get all of these creatures. Somehow they came to him, also under the providential, miraculous hand of God, who is sovereign over all creatures and all of creation. He adds in verse 21, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. This is a massive project. And God is preparing in these instructions in verse 21 that he's going to prepare, he's going to begin again. He knows the future. And then the chapter ends by restating Noah's character. He did all of this, all that God commanded him. So God gives the instructions in the previous verses, and then verse 22 says Noah did all that God commanded him. There's an unspecified amount of time between all of those verses and verse 22. How long did it take Noah to build this ark? We're not actually told how long it took to build it. In Kentucky, it took a thousand people working a year and a half to build the replica. And you can imagine this guy without modern equipment and tools and his sons, those are some beastly dudes, that could build this boat 
what is emphasized is not the, how much time it took, but Noah's obedience of faith. He did all that God commanded him. Same thing happens again uh, in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did all that God commanded him. He's taking God at his word, and he's acting on it. He's trusting in God's word. It's one of the big takeaways as you just read the story of Noah. God gives him this word, and he believes him. He lives by faith. So that's the faith of Noah being reflected there. Secondly, notice here in chapter 7, the flood of judgment. The chapter begins by highlighting again the character of Noah, that God sees that he's righteous in his generation. And in verses 2 to 3, the Lord gives Noah the process for boarding. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and the female, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Now, here we see early on in Genesis, Genesis 7, God speaking about clean animals. Now, this is before the law code that is given in uh, Exodus and Leviticus about clean and unclean foods, but it's already operative here. Early on in Genesis, these clean animals would be the animals for human consumption and also the animals that would be used for sacrifices to God in worship. God is preparing not only to sustain Noah and his family through this flood, but also he's already thinking on the other side of the flood of worship that will be offered to him, which is exactly what Noah does after the flood. And then he says, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. 40 days and 40 nights. Th this could be symbolic language reflective of a very long time. It could be actually 40 days of, of, uh, of rain. 40 is a very significant number, obviously, in the Bible. 40 days at Mount Sinai. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days is, it, it calls to mind testing and trial. And that's what Noah is, is going to be in. He and his family are going to be in a time of testing and trial. And God gives him a seven-day advance warning so he can prepare everything. Because you can imagine the challenge of boarding all of these creatures and tending to all their dietary needs uh, in preparation. Now, the Lord gives this word to Noah, and it says Noah did everything that God commanded him. And it's very interesting that there's no mention of another word of God to Noah until it's all over, and he tells him to remove the, the roof and, and to exit. So, in other words, he gives him this radical commission tells him about what's to happen, and then he's silent. Noah lives by faith in the bare word of God. It's a beautiful picture for us. What faith it must have taken to have stayed in that ark, simply trusting on God's word. And God's word continues to sustain us until we see Jesus. We're told in verse 6 how old Noah was. He's a very young sprite, 600. <laughs> 600 years old. Now, I don't, I'm not sure what kind of senior discount you get at 600, but you've got to get some more than a free coffee at McDonald's when you're, when you're 600 years old. Somebody has said that the seven ages of man are spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. I don't know what you, 
where you're at at age 600. It makes me think of old George Burns who said that tennis is a game for young people. Until 25, you can play singles. From there until age 35, you play doubles. I won't tell you my age, he said, but when I played, there were 28 people on the court just on my side of the net. <laughs> well, this guy's not playing tennis. He's building a massive boat with his sons. That's some old man strength, 600 years old. And here his age helps us to identify when the flood will begin. And at the end, we, we are told that he's now 601. Gives us a sense of the duration of how long they're in that ark. Well, just as God says, verses 7 to 10, the flood comes seven days just as he said it would. And then if you skip down to verses 11 and 12, you see that the waters come from both ab above and below. It's pretty remarkable. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, uh, great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I guess turned crazy after just a couple of days of rain. You can imagine this. And you can imagine the powerful forces of the earth being brought to bear on the earth. The foundations of the deep refer to the subterranean waters that burst forth. It carries the idea of a violent splitting apart of something. One writer said this would have produced tremendous changes in the earth's surface, especially if earthquakes and tsunamis were the result. Again, if we would have seen it, it would have been horrific. We read in verses 13 and following, on that very same day, Noah and his sons and their wives entered the ark along with the animals. And then you notice at the end this wonderful statement in verse 16. After they entered, it says, the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. This is speaking of some kind of divine activity that God gives them the instructions to build the ark, and then he is the one who shut the door. He saved them. He secured them. It's a vivid illustration of the fact that salvation is of the Lord. And in Christ, my friends, we are safe from the waters of judgment. This salvation that comes from the Lord, we have been shut in by our sovereign Lord. We're given more description about the event in verses 17 and following as the flood continued. Uh, for 40 days. The total previous of 150 days seems to include this 40 days of actual rain that is, that is falling. And so we're left with this picture at the end of the chapter of God's judgment. Now, Peter links this story to baptism in Second Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Just as Noah and his family passed through the waters of death and destruction and came out safe on the other side, so Christians who are in Christ pass from life to death in Christ. So we often say that bab baptistry is a picture of death. Waters were always a symbol of chaos and destruction and death, but we don't stay down, we have come up. Being united to Jesus, who, who died and was raised, we too die and are raised. We too are saved. We can come through the flood waters of judgment because of Jesus. And that gets us then to the faithfulness of God, verses uh, 1 to 22 in chapter 8, that this salvation is, is owing to God, is it, uh, reflected there in verse 1, that God remembered Noah. It's not that God had forgotten Noah. <laughs> like, where did he go? Like, only eight people left. Surely you can find him. But that he, he moved toward Noah. He was committed to Noah. 
This is actually the center point of the story, what some Hebrew scholars call a chiasm, that everything centers on this, this one verse, but God remembered Noah. There is severity but kindness in the story. There is judgment but salvation in the story. He acted on behalf of Noah. And you also see echoes of Genesis 1 with the word wind, as God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters now subsided. That's the word used in Genesis 1, ruach, the spirit of God that was hovering over the waters, bringing order out of chaos. Now, too, again, the spirit of God is going to do sort of a recreation, a restart of things. That which was chaotic in judgment will now be brought back to order. And again, showing us that our God is able to bring about new creation. That one day he will bring about one forever. He remembered Noah not only by keeping him safe through the flood, but also causing the waters to recede. You see that in uh, verses 2 and following, and how it eventually rested at Ararat, that is modern-day Turkey. And then we read of this uh, exercise where Noah is sending out the raven and then the dove to check on the, the nature of creation. And progressively, uh, all the indications of the bird's uh, reaction shows that uh, the earth is becoming inhabitable now, and they can uh, return out, uh, of, get out of the ark and return to the earth, that the conditions continue to improve. And then finally, God speaks to Noah in verse 15. A lot has happened between his last word and then this word. When he says, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out all of the creatures, and Noah goes out of the ark with all of those creatures that he had brought in. They were in this ark a long time. I want you to think about this. When it began, chapter 7, verse 11, he's 600 years old. Now he's 601. And if we follow T. Desmond Alexander's math, it's like this. The waters prevailed for 150 days, and then they abated for 150 days. Then it took 70 days to dry, a total of 370 days. That is about a year Noah and his family were in this boat. How would you make it one week in a boat with your family? <laughs> like some of us go on family vacation and we're like, man, is it Friday yet? Um, but here he is in this ark for a year. What do you do when you come out of this ark? You notice verse 20 and 21, what Noah does is he worships. He takes those clean animals, it says he built an altar, and he worshiped God with these burnt offerings, and the Lord was pleased by it. I love this. The first thing he doesn't do is go build a house. He would need that. He doesn't go and plow a field. He comes out to worship, because our number one priority in life is to worship God, to offer praise to our Creator and our Redeemer, He's a prototype of Moses who would make sacrifices in the wilderness. Job, an early patriarch, also presented a burnt offering in Job 1.5 as atonement for sin. And Noah's offering might have carried some sense of that as well and as an appeasement in behalf of all humanity. In, in addition to being a, a praise offering, a thanks offering. And his worship is, ple is pleasing to God. Previously, God was grieved by wickedness, but now he is pleased by worship. 
And God responds by giving him this covenant that he will never again curse the ground because of the evil of man. He will not strike them down again. And he tells us that the rhythms of life will now go on. What was then chaotic in judgment will now be back to orderliness. It's a hard one to say on the fly. Seed time and harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, night and day shall not cease. And later we're, we're told in chapter 9 that the sign for this covenant will be a rainbow, that it will be a picture of God's faithfulness. And what a thing God has done to give us a visible reminder when we see a rainbow of his great faithfulness. It was so wonderful last year on our anniversary service, our 11th birthday as a church, I was driving to Richmond that evening after our member meeting with a friend of mine, and there were two rainbows right along the interstate as we were just singing that Sunday about great is thy faithfulness, bringing us to this point. Noah recognized that God was faithful and therefore God deserves worship. Now, there are three quick reflections I want us to think about as we land the plane here, or land the ark perhaps. The first is the ark of salvation. What a picture this is. Isn't this a vivid picture of salvation? Here is the story. Either you are swept away in a flood of judgment, or you are safe in a refuge of grace. And that refuge is named Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all of humanity. You will be swept away in a flood of judgment, or you are safe in a refuge of grace named Jesus Christ. So this is given us here that we would be wise into salvation. Don't neglect this salvation. God's saying in this story, get in the ark, and now he tells all humanity, get in Jesus. Get in Jesus Christ, and you're safe. You are saved we're not saved because of who we are, or our background, our morality, our religiosity, how many verses we know, how many times we've been to church. We are saved if we are in Jesus Christ. Everything outside of Jesus Christ is judgment. Thanks be to God. We're in the boat. We're going to be all right if we're in Jesus. Listen to this verse from Romans 6.23 in light of this story. The wages of sin is death. That's what we've just witnessed. The wages of corruption and wickedness is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where is it? In Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a way to escape death and judgment. He's in Jesus Christ. The ark of salvation. Now a second reflection. Noah is called in 2 Peter chapter 2 a herald of righteousness. It's a wonderful phrase when Peter says, if he did not, that is God, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. A herald, of course, is one who speaks, one who gives the news, one who announces. Now, interestingly, uh, you probably picked up on this in the story, Noah doesn't talk. <laughs> so we, we assume he was preaching. I think that's a fair assumption. Scholars have pointed out, you know, the, the likelihood of that. There's a lot of teaching in ancient Jewish circles of Noah preaching, and Peter's own words here seem to indicate that there was some sense of him heralding God's righteousness, which would have had an implicit call for people to repent of their unrighteousness. But he's righteous in an unrighteous age. That's a great picture for us. He is a herald of righteousness. He has righteous actions, doesn't he? 
He takes God at his word and he acts and he is unique. And you know Noah had to receive a lot of ridicule during that time. Like, what are you doing, man? What size of truck do you need to pull that boat down to the lake? <laughs> what kind of fishing are you going to do? Have you lost your mind? And Noah just kept trusting God. He kept building that boat. And people who were mocking him one day in the flood of judgment would have wanted to go back and believe him. He's a greater Jesus, or a type of Jesus. Jesus, the greater Noah, who preached this righteousness by faith. And many mocked and ridiculed him. So my friends, we are in the line now of Noah living a righteous life by God's grace in an unrighteous time and we're heralds of righteousness telling everyone to get in Christ. Thirdly, the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus spoke about this flood account when he talked about his return. We looked at this several weeks ago when we were studying Luke, right? He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and get, being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, Jesus doesn't say it was wrong to be eating and drinking or to marry or to, to buy, sell, plant. These are things we do in God's world. The problem is people weren't thinking about anything else. They were unprepared. People passing by, Noah would be like, what's that guy doing? They're just going on with their day. They're just going on with their job. They're having fun. They're getting married. They're having kids. And all of a sudden it rains. Then it rains the second day. Then it rains the third day. And it just keeps raining. And then the waters came from above and below. And all of a sudden, everyone who were just going on with their day are swept up in a flood of judgment and it's too late. And Jesus says, that's what the return of the Son of Man will be like. If you wrote it today, you could say they were at the pool, they went to the baseball fields, they went to their office, it was business as usual, and then Christ returned. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, the end will come like this. He said, there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them all. In other words, when Jesus returns, it will be sort of a rerun of the story of Noah. People will be absorbed in their, their daily lives, absorbed in things, not looking for the Savior and judge to appear. So my friends, let us be wise this morning. The day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment and of salvation, should always be on our minds. We live today in light of that day. We live on Monday in light of that day. Do not be spiritually unprepared for that day. Recognize the mercy of God in your life right now. Peter, when reflecting on this in 2 Peter 3, says that God was patient in the days of Noah. And his patience is giving us time to repent and to come to him. And praise God for his patience. He's been patient with us. He gave me time to come to Jesus. So that you don't have to be unprepared for this day of judgment. No, you can be in Christ. You can be in that boat of salvation. Jesus himself, we can live as heralds for righteousness in this crazy, wild, corrupt day that we live in. A new creation is coming for God's people. And all who are in Christ can enjoy it. Our faith will end in sight and death and sorrow and trial will be no more. Our hope is ultimately not planted in this life. The promises of Scripture point us to the future. Future glory, that's where our hope lies. 
with new bodies and a new creation in the presence of Jesus. And that future energizes our lives in the present to make it count. And that future energizes our lives now so that we not lose heart when our hearts are broken, but we can be of good courage. Christ has gone before us. Christ has triumphed through the waters of death, through his resurrection, and his spirit is within us, guaranteeing the inheritance that we have to enjoy. And one day, our final resplendent, glorious resurrection will happen. And we will see him. And we will be with him. And we will never cease to praise him for all that he is and all that he has done. Praise be to God for our great salvation. Thank you, Jesus. We give you glory this morning for your grace and kindness toward us. We thank you that you have shown favor to us. We don't deserve your favor. We don't deserve your grace, and that's what you've bestowed on us. And we bless your holy name. May we never forget your benefits. Help us now as we continue in worship. In your good name we pray. Amen.